Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Mastermind.fm with me, Jean Galea, my dad, Joseph Galea, and our special guest for today, Gregory Klumo from Stasis. In this episode, we do a deep dive on stablecoins and how they work, why they're needed, and it's a jam-packed episode, so I don't want to take too much of your time with this intro. I just jump straight in with the interview with Gregory. And of course, if you like this show, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. And also you can contact us at podcast at mastermind.fm. If you want to give us any feedback on the episodes we've been putting out, or whether you want to suggest some topics to cover in the next episodes. So with that said, let's get straight on into the interview with Gregory. Hi, Gregory. Welcome to mastermind.fm. Hello. Nice to be here. Uh, thanks for joining us. And to start off, I'd like for you to give a bit of background about yourself and the Stasis project and how that got started and maybe like the trajectory of this uh, project so far. Sure. So I'm a programmer by my, by my first education uh, and I built my first company when I was 15. It was an internet service provider. Um, but then I switched into finance and uh, I decided I don't want to work as a programmer for a living. So I switched into finance, started trading markets, became an analyst in the hedge fund and ultimately a portfolio manager. And I was managing quite big macro, global macro fund consisting of uh, derivatives positions, uh, global equities, fund of funds, and some complicated alternative investments. And then the Bitcoin naturally caught my attention because after the global financial crisis, it was obvious the governments will continue to print money. And I was searching for some interesting hedge to protect against that. And then uh, my uh, old friend, uh, actually my ex-classmate, was uh, involved in a Maltese company called Exante, which is a broker dealer. And they were uh, examining the opportunity to launch a fund specifically targeted on Bitcoin. That's how it all started. And when the fund went live, it became obvious that uh, people will inevitably need what now everybody calls stable coins. But I, I called it like a cash on chain because what blockchain literally disrupts is clearing custody and settlement. And we can talk about that later. But in a sense, you need to have a cash on chain asset, which has similar characteristics as this blockchain asset, which is an interesting phenomenon. And it's really a new Internet. It's a new car. If we were like 100, 150 years ago, you could say it's a new innovation. It's a car. If we were 200 years ago, you could say it's a new railroad. So innovations, breakthrough innovations happen every 100 years or so. And I consider this as such. Great. So just to give some context. So you're Russian. Was all this happening while you were still in Russia or were you had you already left Russia by then when you switched from being a programmer or? Uh, Well, my hedge fund and uh, the, the banks I worked for they were uh, European uh, okay. with offices in UK and Cyprus. And I did a lot of uh, traveling and uh, participated in uh, multiple, multiple conferences dedicated to hedge funds, which usually uh, took place in the United States uh, and the UK as well. So I was constantly traveling, living like a world citizen, you might say, since 2012. Maybe. I'm asking also because I find it interesting to see how many projects originate from Russia and kind of that block of countries. 
where the government is not so pro Bitcoin and, and crypto, but still mm-hmm. at the same time, there's a lot of activity on the developer and project level. I don't know if you can explain why there's this difference and at government level and that entrepreneur level. Sure. Well, we have uh, one significant achievement of Soviet Union, which still haunts us up to these days, is a significant uh, and great education in, in basic fundamental professions like math, physics. So all that helps serve like a launchpad to technology, which is what is now is a technology. A lot of programmers from Russia ended up working for major corporations right now in technology like Google or Facebook. Maybe you know the uh, Russian Facebook uh, was built even better than Facebook. When Facebook VK? actually discovered, yeah, VK, they figured out, they couldn't understand how fast it can process pages. And the Facebook guys could not figure out how to uh, synchronize pages uh, inside this huge database. And now the team that was behind this VK uh, built a messenger without funding that is successfully competing with uh, WhatsApp. Yeah, And it's actually better than WhatsApp. You can try it yourself. So I'm saying that we have this potential and this education that we were provided basically for free by the Soviet Union or um, professors and uh, universities that originated initially in Soviet Union. And we just capitalize on this uh, knowledge. Cool. Well, my wife is Russian, so <laughs> I know a bit of the background there, but I didn't know the, I, I was always uh, curious about this clash between government and entrepreneur on the crypto space. But anyway, so coming back to what you said on the cash on chain, uh, let's start from there. And then I know my dad has some questions about the company and other other things, but I think it would be a good starting point of why we need cash on chain. So let's take it from there. Sure. So when uh, you um, cook a soup, you take ingredients that come along nicely together, right? You take vegetables, you take some uh, meat, and then you take some uh, salt, whatever, right? And you mix them all together. And they all kind of have similar characteristics, right? They can be cooked. Consider blockchain assets as a new kind of way of... uh, like, like a new reality. It's like a virtual matrix. And this in, vir- in virtual matrix, you need to have uh, some something, some links to traditional world. They don't have... Uh, so Bitcoin itself uh, doesn't know, or the network itself doesn't know anything about our existing uh, financial system, right? It doesn't care. It doesn't know how much a dollar is worth or how much a euro is worth, right? Or how our settlement SWIFT network works, SEPA network works. So in a nutshell, it's, it's a program that is self-sufficient. And for humanity to understand it, to connect to it, it's easier if it's done through such bridge like cash on chain. Because once this network evolved into what could be called decentralized finance right now, uh, the products appear. So you can have term deposits in decentralized finance, you can have current deposits, you can have loans, you can have flash loans, it's a very interesting phenomenon, we can also discuss this. You can, so you uh, suddenly originated a lot of interesting products which only uh, live in that virtual reality, in, in that blockchain. 
And in order to connect the dots and connect these products to the real world, so people can think of them as valuable products or can think of in terms of the yield or in terms of the savings or investment, something like cash on chain is required. So let's also talk about DeFi and centralized finance. So what's the difference there? And how does a stable coin bridge the gap that you just mentioned? As all uh, native digital assets are quite volatile, they fluctuate widely, partially because there is lack of uh, significant institutional capital, which is changing a bit, but uh, still we are very early. And uh, second, because uh, when you buy Bitcoin or like Ethereum or any other digital asset, you need to go through some intermediaries, some centralized exchange or some counterparty, like financial intermediary, like a bank or somebody else, who will bro broker this deal, right? Who will take some asset in the environment you share this asset with, say a separate banking system, and give you the alternative asset in the from another, say, virtual reality, which Bitcoin belongs to. And stable coins serve as a natural bridge, and moreover, they can be automated and easily priced. Because, for example, U.S. is backed one to one with the euro, so there is very high likelihood that it will be valued close to one euro in perpetuity. So people can send whatever amount of euro they have through the traditional banking system and originate themselves same quantity of euro uh, tokens, and then once they uh, accrue these stable coins in the uh, crypto world, they can access all those applications, decentralized finance, all those interesting deposits, loans, etc., because they already will have this digital asset that belongs to that world. Okay, so we can say that from what we've talked about so far, we're talking about making things more accessible, more easy to use. Uh, okay, so we have the people who invest the first time. You always have to put in your fiat currencies into an exchange mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then convert it either into Bitcoin, Ethereum or other cryptos. Or you can also buy a stable coin. And from there, and this is the bridge we're talking about, you can also go into DeFi because you already have the stable coin which integrates with DeFi, all the other applications on DeFi. Without the stable coin, you wouldn't be able to bridge the gap so easily. You cannot put fiat currencies into DeFi directly. So you need the stable coin. Yeah, yeah. So key uh, component here is uh, for the asset to have same characteristics. It has to settle 24-7 in the same amount of kind of time through the same programming interface, through the same programming language over the same blockchain. And then suddenly once all these things line up, you can do very interesting things. For example, in Euro, the interest rate is negative. So whatever you store in your bank, you are being charged to do it. In DeFi, you can deposit your Euro as stablecoin, which is one-to-one -to, -one to Euro, and actually make some decent yields before the new year and before the start of this insane bull market starting this year. Uh, the yields were triple digit. So you could easily make triple digit annual percentage yield on your stablecoin without risking your principal, which is amazing, which is basically uh, what's called in hedge fund world an alpha opportunity, opportunity to generate uh, return. Okay. So, okay, we've talked about this use case. I am sure that there are other use cases 
that we can get into later. But at this point, I think that people would know that why they need it for this use case. The second question I think people get is who who is issuing these stable coins and why should we trust them? You know, because we still live in a society where the mentality is like money comes from the government. We don't know how it works, but we trust it because there's the government behind it. It's actually not true. The money comes from commercial banks. Yeah. Uh, government can issue treasuries. Government can issue bonds. Uh, but then these bonds have to be bought. And that's how government is getting money and, and getting funded. So governments can issue bonds or collect taxes. That's the only way governments are funded. All money are issued by commercial banks. So once you get the banking license, you have to deposit capital with central bank, say 50 million euro, and suddenly you can issue 500 million worth of credit. So 10 times your capital. And this is exactly how money is being created. So once a commercial bank gets his license and is provided sufficient capital to a central bank, he can start making loans. And those loans are the money that we all touch and see and use. Because once they start circulating through the economy, government starts collecting taxes on it and people start consuming goods and services. So with stablecoins, the setup is very simple. Uh, the stablecoin insurer collects actual cash or bank transfers to its uh, treasury account. And then uh, once it receives that capital, it issues the same amount of digital tokens and provides that to the purchaser, keeping the reserve one-to-one -one, uh, between these two pools of capital. We are the only uh, stablecoin project in the world that is audited by a top auditor, and this is something I'm quite proud of, uh, that uh, uh, we managed to get a relationship with the BDO, bring them on board. It took uh, almost a year to do so, but in the end they uh, confirmed uh, and continued to support us uh, verifying all our accounts and making sure this ratio is one-to-one. -one. Uh, the, the amount of currency we hold equals the amount of tokens we issued. But currently the crypto market is such a young kind of age, it's so young that this uh, credit risk or these audits are nice, but they're not kind of everything the market is looking for. As you know, there is a example of a stable coin that is completely not audited, that uh, nobody really knows what's, how its balance sheet looks like, and still it retains value to US dollar, um, give or take, right? So it was my idea that uh, we need to do everything by the books. We need to do, we need to self-regulate ourselves. We need to collaborate with all regulators across Europe and help them evolve the e-money initiative to upgrade it to say e-money 2.0 because the previous one was created 20 years ago and is literally outdated right now. And we had quite a push with the uh, Maltese VFA Act and um, helped local Maltese government to better understand this technology. And we continue to contribute to regulators uh, across the globe uh, for them to come up with a proper legal framework uh, legitimizing this business model. But so far, we self-regulate ourselves and quite proud of what we achieved putting all these caps or limitations for us to operate, although uh, the goal was to um, 
secure the integrity and the one-to-one -one banking of the stable call operation. Excellent. So let me use that as a segue to get uh, pass on the mic to my dad to ask some questions about the company. And then we can get back to Tether, which you, I think you were referring to that Tether there with uh, the other stable coin. And we can get into the different stable coins because there are also other types of stable coins that are not necessarily pegged to a fiat currency, like uh, uh, I blanked, <laughs> what's the other one, the DAI. You can get uh, other types. So we'll get into that as well. But let me first uh, pass on the mic to my dad. Hello, Greg, and uh, welcome to our podcast. Well, I'm taking the view of uh, people my age. I'm 65 years old, who have worked hard to uh, create some wealth to invest. Unfortunately, at the moment, leaving the money at the bank, um, as you said, you risk uh, <laughs> getting charged for, for leaving your cash there. Therefore, many are looking for alternatives. Um, in Malta, where I'm based and I know that you are based here as well, people are looking at construction mainly. They are investing in bricks and mortar. But they are also hearing about cryptocurrencies. And initially, people were a bit put back um, from uh, going for cryptos because there were a lot of stories about um, the utilization of cryptos by criminals, etc., etc. And if somebody would buy cryptos, he would be seen as if he is conniving with criminals. This notion is thankfully falling off now. We have seen many institutional investors going into cryptos. Cryptos are, you know, uh, their use is, is increasing day by day. And it seems that it is the future. But, but there was this other but, the volatility issue. Therefore, putting your hard-earned earnings into cryptos was risky. Yes, you could earn a lot of money if <laughs> the prices go up, but you can lose if the prices go down. And we have seen this surge in 2017, then the drop in 2018-19, um, 2010-20, there was a recovery. Now it is booming. And uh, some people who did not invest into cryptocurrencies are saying, well, we have missed an opportunity. But you can always start whatever whatever time. Now, you are mentioning stable coins. Now, this is interesting because stable coin, uh, it gives you the notion that uh, it's not volatile. And the name of your company, Stasis, I went to look at the dictionary and the one of the definitions uh, I found is a state of equilibrium or inactivity caused by opposing equal forces. And I think that it marries well with with the stable coin, actually. Therefore, if I understand well, a stable coin is a fiat currency that is euro, for example, or the US dollar, but in digital form. Therefore, basically, we're not talking here about... Um, investing to make a big buck if, if uh, the the things go well and uh, the cryptos uh, increase in value 
But we're talking about acquiring something that can be transacted easily. Now, I'm sorry I'm taking this long introduction, but I think it's important. When I started working as a certified accountant way back in 1974, we didn't have computers. It's not only Malta, but basically all the world. And we used to sit for our exams, not even with a calculator. Imagine that. Now, at that time, to make a payment through a bank, it used to take two working days. Today, after 45 years, you'll find a situation where the banks are still taking two working days to transfer money from a bank account to another. Yes, I can understand different time zones, etc. But with the new technology, I would expect, have expected that it would take a few minutes. And in fact, cryptos just take a few minutes um, for a crypto transaction to take place. That's if they don't if they don't block the transfer nowadays, <laughs> which is also quite likely. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yes. And there is the other corollary I was coming to it. 45 years ago, Greg, uh, we had a huge issue with um, uh, exchange control, not only in Malta, again, in many countries. Therefore, you had to sweat blood sometimes to, to affect the payment, to get the go-ahead. Today, because of anti-money laundering, and I can understand some of the reasons, it takes a lot of hassle sometimes to affect the payment. Therefore, I will come to the point. When we say stable coins, people my age, if they buy stable coins, what are they buying? They're buying freedom to use money in a more liberal way. Let's start with that question. Yes, definitely, sir. You are spot on. And by the way, I named the company exactly because of that definition uh, you presented to us, because I wanted to create a digital asset which will retain the value of traditional asset that we all know, uh, the euro currency. And I, my goal was to make sure I create all the necessary procedures to make these forces in the digital world equalize each other so the digital version of uh, euro will retain its value. And so far, the company is almost three years old. Uh, we are quite successful, uh, I can say, in uh, EuroS, retaining the euro value. It hasn't fluctuated more than a couple percent uh, out of it. So, and you're spot on with your second assumption. This is exactly what you are getting when you're buying stablecoin. You are getting freedom to transact 24-7 with this asset. You can send any amount to anybody in the world with one small limitation. He has to have uh, Ethereum-enabled wallet. He has to be able to access the same network. Previously, uh, only banks could access global network like SWIFT, right? And only banks decided and acted like gatekeepers whose transfer to allow through this gate or not and how long to process them. Now, with the blockchain technology, uh, humanity can create its own networks, right? People can create their own networks. And once more and more people use it, these networks accrue value. We have exactly two networks that proved this concept is really, really valuable and widely followed. Bitcoin network and Ethereum network. Over these two networks, one could run a stablecoin. In fact, the first stablecoin was created over Bitcoin network. But as Ethereum 
gain traction, people switched the stablecoin projects to Ethereum. At this particular moment, Ethereum is not the best uh, network to uh, due to fees uh, to to move value around. Yes, it's very good, it's very reliable, it's secure, it works 24/7, and it's fast. It's like a couple minutes, but it's still not good enough for micropayments, microtransactions, right? Remittances, where you need to send 10 euros or 100 euros and pay a couple cents for that. As a small spoiler, uh, Stasis is in talks with uh, one fast blockchain. I cannot announce the name yet, but it will be uh, public soon. And we will uh, create another version of EuroS on a fast blockchain to be able to uh, address those small issues and those markets like acquiring and remittances. So far, EuroS is operational over Ethereum and it costs on average 5, 6, 7, sometimes 10 euro to send a transfer. It's not it's not uh, small, but you get the freedom to transact with any amount and any time of the day. That's available already, yes. And then you've got some additional perks as you can buy Bitcoin with it, you can participate in DeFi with it, you can transact in it. it it's called non-custodial uh, assets. So you don't have any counterparty who stores it. You store it yourself. Only your thoughts, which is a private key to the network, uh, controls your wealth. It's a good thing and a bad thing. For modern for, for young population, of course, it's it's good because everybody is so native with these gadgets and devices. For older population, I would still suggest to have some backups and some um, additional maybe hardware wallets in place to secure your assets. Because once you have this, once you purchased EuroS stablecoin or any other stablecoin and put it on your wallet, it's called non-custodial wallet, uh, nobody can help you if you lose your password. Like nobody can recover that. And the cash euro we hold to back those coins will be held there forever because we'll not be able to pay you back unless you bring these coins back, right? Um, so yes, there is a freedom, but there is a cost to this freedom, which is you have to keep your passwords uh, really safe because once somebody steals your password, he can easily move these funds around and no bank will be able to uh, cover your losses, you know. So there therefore, you have it. do you think that um, this system will start bypassing the anti-money laundering uh, checks and balances? Well, anti-money laundering is not an issue because what blockchain also disrupts is transparency. Previously, you could have had scandals like Clearstream, or uh, I mean, every major. Let's face it, every major bank laundered hundreds of millions of money over the course of last whatever decades, right? In blockchain, everything is transparent. So you can track every transaction up to its origins. Uh, when there were rumors and kind of people were saying that cryptocurrencies are, for, are primarily for illegal use, I was totally against that because uh, US cash US dollar is the primary asset for illegal use, not cryptocurrencies. You don't want to do anything illegal with cryptocurrencies because it may back track to you sometime in the future because transactions are all recorded and could be examined. Last couple of years, what happened was creation of monitoring tools and software, which is automated right now and connected to all cryptocurrency exchanges. Whenever, whenever a transaction is made, 
exchanges screen it for its region. Uh, and it's very easy to make programmable AML around cryptocurrencies, much easier than uh, through the uh, concentrated or uh, not transparent uh, banking accounts or banking network. While there is no, say, obligation to do like all traditional AML kind of checks in peer-to-peer transactions, say that the liability to do these checks is somewhere somewhere in the air, right? Nobody can be liable if, uh, like in terms of the counterparties, right? If somebody sends you 1 million euros, for example, it, it becomes your liability to report this as an income or as, as an asset you suddenly became in a possession of. So, so liability sw- shifts from the banking system to an individual or a company that is transacting with these assets. But the opportunity, I mean, the, the programmability and the technological aspect to track all that is totally available and much better and more transparent than uh, any financial system that existed before. Greg, this this brings to mind the digital currency issued by the Chinese government um, late uh, last year, uh, if I remember well. And the the Yuan or uh, whatever they call it, China is well known for its uh, controlling <laughs> system that controls uh, the citizen. And uh, quite strangely, initially for me as well, it was one of the first countries, if not the first, to issue an official digital currency. And possibly many others will follow soon. Now, the question is this. Did China issue this digital currency to control the black business, sort of? Therefore, I imagine that some of its citizens were using ways and means to bypass the systems. Maybe the digital currency will um, enable the government to control if necessary, if deemed necessary. What are your views about this? Well, my views are very simple. Even like dating back to USSR years, I learned that once there are some restrictions, uh, people will find a way to bypass them. Uh, China is one of the biggest uh, users of Tether and cryptocurrencies initially because electricity cost was subsidized there across most of the regions and a lot of mining operations originated there. If you look at crypto exchanges, which exist today, four out of five top or six cryptocurrency exchanges, biggest ones, originated from China. Uh, also because uh, of uh, their very early involvement in the sector, but at the same time because of their uh, Chinese demand for speculation or gambling or like kind of, they're very, they get very excited uh, gambling with anything, with, with capital, with goods, whatever. So I think the move with the uh, CBDC in China is just uh, temporary to kill the demand uh, among the ordinary population. So they uh, will have some more time to, I mean, the government have more time to prepare or maybe implement additional uh, legislation to start tracking cryptocurrencies more actively. But it's nowhere near, I mean, the, the Chinese CBDC or cryptocurrency cannot be even name the cryptocurrency. It's just a centralized database that's controlled by a government. The whole beauty of blockchain is, is, I repeat, it disrupts clearing, custody, and settlement. 
And these services were historically oligopolized by uh, biggest banks, institutions, and partially governments. So once, once you, if you, if you take out clearing custody and settlement out of uh, this product or asset, or I mean, the whole concept just uh, collapses. It just doesn't work. Uh, just doesn't work it. It's it's another e-money that they created and they tried to sell it as a cryptocurrency if, to kill the thirst uh, of the population to experiment with this technology. It uh, will take a while, but uh, people will make their way into true cryptocurrencies, the centralized ones, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and, and others. Yeah, but therefore, if the Chinese government or any government for that matter that issues digital currencies would want to check any individual transacting uh, with that currency, is it easier via blockchain? It's easy in, in two environments. It's easy in blockchain once you know the actual address of a particular customer, and it's easy in centralized platform. There is no big difference between those, uh, maybe with the only exception that in centralized environment, you always know uh, whom belongs what. In uh, the centralized environment, like Ethereum, for example, yes, you can have some ideas or you can track the assets, but uh, these technologies or these services are not available widely to public yet. They're available to law enforcement and some big counterparties like cryptocurrency exchanges, but uh, not to general public. But ultimately, your spending through the local banking system is already trackable, right? Is already traceable. You spend uh, money using your Visa or MasterCard, right? There is just two counterparties. Uh, and they also see all your uh, expenses. Your bank sees all your expenses. So to some extent, this is something that was already above the radar for a while already. Cryptocurrencies do not solve the anonymity problem of, of uh, uh, the money you spend. They give you more flexibility and they uh, partially avoid unnecessary money laundering uh, checks and delays that uh, are enforced uh, uh, to move your capital around. But, they but do, do not governments gain more control or lose lose control by, by these crypto transactions or stable coins? I can't say they kind of they get any influence with the control at all. They uh, it's just another instrument. It started like an experiment, but now it's growing and capturing significant market share uh, from traditional financial system, right? So I can't say the governments had significant control over financial system either, right? Remember the global financial crisis, the uh, European banking crisis, the governments, they couldn't do anything about collapsing prices of Deutsche Bank shares or Bank of Valletta. The only thing they could do is to borrow more money and uh, start to buy some crucial components of the financial ecosystem. Now, what, so what I was referring to fail. was um, anti-money laundering um, as such. Therefore, my question was, through stable coins or, or the blockchain in general, do governments have more control against money uh, laundering or, or, or not? Or doesn't make any difference? Again, with stable coin, inevitably, you will want to buy something in real world with it, right? So, okay, it's an asset that lives in a virtual world on a blockchain. You can transact with blockchain apps. 
But then you want to buy a car, you want to buy an apartment, right? You want to buy some food. Inevitably, you will face all the money laundering requirements on your exit, right? So in that sense, it doesn't really matter uh, whether you are checked on the way to the market, digital asset market, or on the way out of it. Uh, it still will be uh, a process everybody will go through. For example, okay, we are not required to uh, do uh, anti-money laundering kind of checks, but we do them anyway, just because inevitably there will be a legislation that uh, will oblige the service providers to do these checks uh, on the way to the digital asset. So in some sense, uh, we are self-regulating ourselves currently to prepare for the next uh, wave of regulation. Actually, uh, linking to your last statement, I was going to ask you, how are you regulated, if you are you regulated, and where? Mm -hmm. We are currently a Maltese uh, company that uh, issues uh, unregulated token under the VFA Act. We are not required to get a license. Uh, we have several legal opinions from UK, Germany, US, Switzerland, Malta, that uh, we are not a security, not an e-money. And uh, the only way people can get comfortable uh, with our balance sheet is by looking at the audits and then looking at the markets available across several cryptocurrency exchanges and uh, DeFi applications on this asset. So we are not regulated right now, and I don't see currently uh, any stablecoin regulation coming online anytime soon in Europe. In US, uh, that process was even worse a couple of years ago, but suddenly it started to accelerate last year. And I guess that's because a lot of institutions started to uh, actively uh, look in this market. I'm actually surprised we are the biggest non-dollar stablecoin and uh, we are by far the largest euro stablecoin because uh, no major institution in Europe attempted to create a euro stablecoin yet. And the reason was what? <laughs> well, there are two reasons. First is all institutions have been rejecting the cryptocurrency market as a interesting, attractive, appealing instrument uh, because they were protecting their clearing custody and services oligopoly, right? And uh, second, uh, negative interest rates. So we pioneered a way to keep significant amounts of euro cash uh, without significant or major risks involved uh, and even make some money on the reserves we held. But for most of the people, most of the institutions, the euro cash is a, is a distractor, right? They have to pay negative interest to store it at the central bank. Therefore, if I understand you well, um, stable coins and cryptocurrencies are a threat to traditional banking. So far, not at all, because the, the market is still too small. The global stablecoin market is around 30 billion equivalent, and it's still nothing comparative compared to trillions in uh, banking transactions happening um, daily. But it's growing, and it's growing at a very fast rate. Uh, more and more banks inevitably will have to facilitate these transactions either on behalf of their clients, because there'll be clients knocking their doors and saying, why 
don't you still do this or why why can't I buy this through you? I'll close my account with your bank and go to, to the competitor because they're already doing it. And inevitably, the banks have, have to figure out what will be their uh, value proposition, what will be their product besides just uh, custody and settlement because that could be outsourced. Think of this like uh, hosting, web, website hosting on the internet. When the internet just came along, people were creating servers and computers and launched websites from their apartments. My first uh, company was run from my apartment and my website was a computer I was sleeping nearby, right? But now people are hosting these uh, websites and applications uh, in uh, within Amazon or other data centers. So what blockchain offers is an opportunity to outsource clearing custody and settlement to a network and not require a central counterparty be involved in this process. Now you started in 2018, right? Uh, Stasis and uh, 2017. Uh, actually, yeah. the, the work started in 2017. Uh, yeah, but officially, of... I think the company was uh, set up in 2018 because I had a look at the financial statements and mm-hmm. it started in May or something like that, uh, 2018. Yeah. Maybe the preparatory work started, obviously, obviously before that. Yep. I had the hope that uh, this new VFA Act and the push that was... Uh, started by Mr. Silvio Scambri and his cabinet and DLT framework will uh, resolve in some crypto-friendly regulation, which will uh, in turn uh, help us roll out across Europe uh, pretty soon, pretty fast. But that turned out not to be the case, although we are still happy with our relationship. It's just uh, the, the whole regulatory landscape lagged after cryptocurrencies peaked in 2017-18 and then entered the bear market. And then, as you know, the Malta had a couple of scandals with Sata Bank and then with, uh, with a couple other government yeah. officials. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, in fact, there is a contradiction in Malta, whereas uh, government is encouraging uh, companies like yours and uh, cryptos, etc. There are some banks that uh, are reluctant. Others even go as far as blocking uh, any transactions uh, involving cryptos. Therefore, mm-hmm. there is this, this contradiction. Now, if a bank wants to the risk and the shareholders push for the risking, obviously, I mean, they have to take certain policies that go maybe against the government's policy. But uh, I see this as a big contradiction in Malta. But let's say um, I want to buy stable coins. Is there a difficult process to, to do this um, if I want to buy from Malta, for example? No, no it's very easy. You, you have to pass through KYC process. You have to set up an account, uh, uh, pass the KYC process, and then uh, uh, you get the banking credentials where you send funds. Very, uh, very similar to a broker brokership relationship where you open a broker account and then you send funds. Um, and then uh, in exchange for that funds, you instantly get uh, the stablecoin itself to your uh, Ethereum wallet uh, address. And then you are free to do whatever you want with it. Although, yeah, but first uh, I have to take out the money from my bank. Yes. Therefore, would the bank stop me from doing that? Well, it depends. Uh, so far, we hadn't 
we didn't have much problems with the banks making those payments because everything uh, we do is up to the current legislation and standards that are available in Europe and Switzerland. So we now have the Maltese entity and uh, all the secondary market to buy and sell US is facilitated by a Swiss entity, uh, which is licensed by FINMA, a local uh, regulator. And it's 100% legitimate to trade against uh, onboarded customers any amount unless there is sufficient paperwork in place. Like you can provide source of funds and you can uh, send euro to the banking details that we, we provide. Uh, but the local have... banks wouldn't tell you it's against their policy to allow customers to buy stable coins, for example. Well, it's again... It's, some answer lies in the desire of a bank to keep the capital inside and not allow the customer to transact with his cash, right? With his capital in a way he wants to do so. You have to be maybe somewhat uh, uh, stubborn and uh, in the end of the day, it's your money, right? So the bank should not restrict you from transacting with your money unless you're doing a legitimate transaction. Yeah, but we there is one major outside. bank in Malta that tells you, if you insist, we can close your accounts. Yes, you can insist, but okay. <laughs> close yeah, your accounts. I mean, there, is no, uh, there is no issue with the uh, um, banks right now in Europe that open up accounts that are crypto-friendly or are just friendly towards customers. So uh, your bank relationship does not have to be with this major bank and, and at all. You can set up another bank account, move some money from your existing account to this other bank, then transact from it. So, yeah, I know uh, what you're talking about. And uh, uh, I actually was told not to even deposit even 50 euro worth of cash to that bank ATM because I might get my accounts locked. But I think uh, it's just a short-term problem because of the political situation and then some money laundering issue on Malta last couple years that was brought to attention uh, by global regulators. And uh, the the time has to pass and it will all be forgotten. But so far, it's just too big of uh, attention towards this. If Malta uh, passes the gray listing test, probably, then it would be okay. Yep. Um, uh, we we ended up uh, having just one account in Malta for our company, and we do not uh, accept money from uh, customers who are willing to buy and sell cryptocurrency or euro stablecoin on that account. We just use it for general purposes, and we bank outside of Malta and don't have any problems with that. It's very uh, affordable, fast, reliable, and unfortunately, this is the situation where Malta is, but... Uh, it's it's good that there are alternatives. It can be temporary, as you said. I noticed, Greg, um, which is quite uh, an achievement, as I see it. Um, at the end of 2019, you had 32 million of reserves and equivalent in uh, stable coins. As of today, you have around 47 million, right? Close to 50, 50 million. Quite a big growth. How do you see it going forward? How much of growth do you see into this? To be honest, I am actually disappointed in the growth we had because I had much higher hopes 
for the stablecoin market uh, when I started this uh, project. And uh, just to give you some comparison, the stablecoin market for uh, during this grew from 3 billion to 30 billion. So, and, and we grew just by say 40, 50 percent. Uh, I think that's in US dollars, right? Yeah, probably not. Yes, yes. And there are two uh, reasons for that. First of all, the major stablecoin market is in US dollars. And uh, the whole cryptocurrency marketplace is more or less priced in US dollars. So everybody's tracking the Bitcoin price in US dollars. But that happens with every new major asset class that uh, shows up on the global arena. I remember when Russian equities were starting to be liberalized and the institutional investors from the West started trading them. They were first priced in dollars. And then other emerging markets followed. Uh, Chinese market maybe was an exception, but other emerging currencies and uh, markets like Thailand, Brazil, all of them were priced in dollars first, their assets, before ultimately uh, moving to local currency. So I anticipate the same will happen with cryptocurrencies. Now we are in the era of uh, other regions, countries looking at these marketplaces and starting pricing assets across these markets in their uh, local currencies. And I think this is why the U.S. demand uh, is finally picking up. And the second argument is the uh, DeFi uh, marketplace, which uh, suddenly uh, people realized DeFi is offering very low risk, say structured nodes or capital protected nodes, which give you yield on euro. And the spread between the interest rate slash risk you are getting in traditional European banking system relative to the yield and the risk you're getting in decentralized finance is so big uh, that some people are willing to try it and, and uh, allocate some capital into these products. Just to give you some perspective, December last year, uh, the yield to deposit euro stablecoin in DeFi protocol was 150% per year. So you deposit the stablecoin into a program. It's not controlled by any individual or a counterparty. It's just a uh, a program in the blockchain. Uh, the closest analogy I have is uh, uh, Agent Smith from from the movie Matrix. He was also a program that operated under predefined rules. So the whole decentralized finance space is is a number of those Agent Smiths, which uh, do some uh, program pre-programmed work, which result in the capital gain for a depositor. So that yield went from 150% in December to like 30% now uh, because of significant capital inflows. So the yield is still there, the opportunity is still there, but it's just so many new participants, so, so much capital that the yield uh, fell. And it happens with every major market and the risk repricing. Think of um, bonds of a new, new enterprise. For example, when Google just came to the market and decided to borrow some capital via bonds, its interest rate was really high. It was like 20, 30, 40%, right? But still, it was high relative to other fixed income opportunities that existed back then. And now, if Google to borrow something, uh, the company would get maybe 2 or 3% interest rate per year on a longer duration bonds. Now, of course, the main uh, central bank interest rate is also uh, in influencing 
part here, but you get the picture, right? Once there is an opportunity and lack of institutional capital, and in crypto it's exactly that, there is just significant opportunity, a lot of institutions still don't understand, and that's why there are yields available. Once institutions pour in capital, the yields will be closer to uh, what you have in traditional financial system, although the gap is still huge. Okay, and uh, you are leading me to the next, perhaps, set set of questions. Okay, therefore, you are disappointed at the rate of growth. On the other hand, can you blame somebody like me who prefers to invest in bricks and mortar rather than buying stable coins when perhaps the opportunity to have growth, to have a high return on the investment is rather low, was maybe high when there was this DeFi opportunity. Now it is going down. Therefore, apart from the speed, the, the freedom of having stable coins to buy whatever you want to buy, why should somebody buy stable coins now? Because there is no big, as I see it, no big opportunity to make a gain, like investing in Bitcoin or Ethereum or another cryptocurrency. So the answer to that is very simple. Uh, you buy stable coins right now to familiarize yourself with the digital asset landscape without risking any significant principle. And once you are comfortable with this ecosystem, with the wallets, with the, all the technology that's behind this market, you can start figuring out what is the amount of capital you can allocate to a particular opportunity in this space. There are more than 500 cryptocurrencies, right? And around 10,000 of them died last three years. So this is like a Wild West market. Uh, some projects I know went up 200 times last six months. Just think of it, 200 times. You put 1,000 euro, you have 200,000 euro uh, now. And probably you are somewhere near the local extremum in the marketplace and there'll be a correction. But after that correction, there'll be another uh, winners, another champions who will emerge to be the new Amazon of crypto, new Apple of crypto. This is the opportunity for the next hundred years, like technology-wise. Although the road will be very volatile and, and bumpy, I think stable coins are the first and very simple instrument to familiarize yourself with this uh, new world. Good point. Uh, I see it. Now, if there is a surge in demand for stable coins, can there be um, an increase in, in the price? That is, instead of being tied to one stable coin in euros equals one euro of fiat currency, the stable coin can rise above that? Can yes. That happen? Yes, very good question. And uh, yes, it can, although not significantly. If you chart Euro S against Euro, for example, you will see over the last three years it fluctuated around par, maybe rising as far as 1.0405. So give it or take maybe 3% corridor to the upside and to the downside. Because that is the level where an arbitrageur premium starts getting big enough to take advantage of this opportunity. But Tether, uh, on the other side, had a situation where it fell 
below par. So it traded 70 cents on the dollar, 7.0, and then climbed back to, to par. But since you, like, you cannot really predict the flows uh, in the digital asset space, there is always somebody who is selling and somebody who is buying. So the digital asset, like a stable coin, always fluctuates around par. It is never so like 1.0000. Sorry, yeah. sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but in the case of Tether, it went down as far as I know because there were some doubts as to whether they were keeping enough reserves. Am I right? Yeah, there are still doubts. Probably they are not keeping enough of reserves. Uh, yes, that, that can damage the stablecoin market, I think, around the world. But if you have a surge in demand on your company, people start giving you millions to, to give them stable coins. In a way, as I see it, it's easy because you get the money from the investors and you give them stable coins, right? And for the price, does it remain the same? Or, or if you don't cope with that demand, I don't know. No, no. Look, it's uh, you're uh, mixing two markets together, primary market and the secondary market. So on the primary market, we only face accredited investors starting from 1 million plus. You cannot buy anything from Stasis, uh, 400 euros, for example. We do KYC, we sign NDA, we do email, and we only transact in big amounts. In that transaction, it's always one-to-one. So once an institution comes in and buys 10 million euros and sends us 10 million euro, it's always one-to-one. Now, on the secondary market, once there is some trading involved, the price can fluctuate from, say, 0.9899 to 1.02, whatever. And those are the fluctuations either uh, a retail person or a passive investor like yourself could take advantage on, or they are being arbed by these institutions, which, say, bought 10 million euros at uh, par, and then once the price rose to 1.2, they started selling a bit. And then once the price dropped below par, they start to buy it on, on the secondary market. So, okay. uh, in a way, they are market makers, right? Uh, yeah, they, but they, they are, they are self-motivated market to market make because, because there is, uh, there is margin. Uh, and yes, sometimes uh, retail uh, traders, they don't really care. It's 99 cents or, uh, 1.01 because other digital assets fluctuate much uh, more wildly. Therefore, if I want to buy 10,000 euros of stable coins, where do I have to go? So you go to uh, stasis.net slash sellback. You create a, an account there. It will be an account with the Swiss counterparty that facilitates secondary market for small transactions. You will get banking details and you send 10,000 euro and they send you 10,000 euros. They charge zero to buy and 0.1% to sell. So once you want to sell those uh, back to euro, you'll be charged 0.1%, although with a cap of 50 euro. So whatever amount you sell, uh, you'll be charged 0.1%. Sorry, 50 euro, yeah, maximum. Sean, do you have any questions before I pass on to the financial statements? Yeah, I mean, you can also sell on exchanges, I guess, no? Yeah, yeah, there are several other exchanges like Bitfinex just launched Bitcoin, Euros Pair, uh, OKCoin, uh, Globitex, uh, Tokens.net, a uh, couple others. Uh, we have uh, 
quite a community in Indonesia, believe it or not, and in Turkey, biggest Indonesian exchange, Indodax supports EUROS. So uh, if you want to send or get some Indonesian rupee to spend uh, across Indonesia, you can deposit EUROS to their local exchange, exchange it to Indonesian rupee, and then uh, spend it in Indonesia. And a question I have, why would the major exchanges, say Kraken, Coinbase, Binance, not have euros and have tether for example because to my what i see surface value i'd much rather trust euros where i know that's what is backed versus tether very good question so coinbase has uh, a competitor to some extent they have usdc and they were quite successful in launching it actually after we launched euros but with the resources they have with the user base they have, they uh, very quickly outgrew us in terms of the size of total emission. It's now the second biggest dollar stablecoin. They don't see the market yet for the euro stablecoin. Maybe that will change soon. And uh, with Binance, it's very simple. They asked a significant fee, a listing fee, and I was never in a position to pay any listing fees because EUROS uh, still is not really a business. It's just uh, continues to be a charity for the industry as a transparent and reliable euro-backed stablecoin. It can start to look like a business once we grow to 500 million, 1 billion. And the reason is uh, the negative interest rate in euro because you need to have really big cushion of cash to generate some yield out of it. So far, we've been focusing on the developing solutions around EuroS which uh, can generate some revenue, but EUROS itself cannot afford to pay a listing fee. It's just not uh, in, in, in our, it's not in our DNA. Okay, um, let's turn to the financial statements. I had a look at your financial statements that you publish on your website, uh, very transparent. Um, the last ones obviously are for 2019, I assume 2010-20 they're still being compiled. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make some direct questions. First of all, the parent company, it seems, is registered in the Isle of Man, mm-hmm. uh, whilst uh, STSS is registered uh, in Malta. Why the Isle of Man? Why Malta? And who is behind uh, the company in, in the Isle of Man? Sure. Uh, so first of all, I wanted to structure the stablecoin in a way that uh, no particular shareholder will own any of the assets because these assets, they belong to token holders, right? And while we still don't have a regulatory framework, like with banks, where there are segregated uh, assets for the capital of the company itself and uh, clients like deposits and loans, we couldn't uh, find a setup in which way we would be separating these assets. Imagine you yourself as a shareholder in Stasis, right? What does it mean? It means that all assets that are on a balance sheet, you could potentially, theoretically, pay yourself as a dividend, as a shareholder. I don't want that, and uh, token holders don't want that. So that's why I structured a company in a way where there is no individual shareholders. There is a foundation that owns the Isle of Man company, which we pay for our developers from, because it's a tax-free jurisdiction and it's also crypto-friendly uh, jurisdiction. 
And then there is the Maltese company that just issues the stable coin itself because I had high hopes for this VFA Act. Uh, plus I targeted the Euro market first place and I didn't want to launch the Euro stable coin from some offshore market, even from Isle of Man, right? I needed a European entity to launch the Euro stable coin from. And Malta had high hopes and promises for the uh, upcoming cryptocurrency regulation. And if you remember, Prime Minister himself uh, was saying that any uh, local business who has troubles transacting through the banking system should turn their attention to stable coins. So that's why I selected Malta as a, as a launchpad. And so far, um, I still don't, don't see any significant competitor among other European countries to launch a stablecoin issuer from its territory. Okay. Um, looking at the financial statements of the Maltese company, first of all, the share capital is very low, 1,200 euros, which is more or less the minimum um, in Malta. And... To date, you have accumulated um, some losses, not big losses, but uh, but losses. No revenue. Um, it seems that you have waived your fees, maybe to facilitate the launch, make it more accessible, etc. And whilst you say that you have a number of professionals working, you know, for your organization, including professionals in IT, law, accounting, uh, etc. There are no payroll costs in your income statement. And uh, apart from the audit fee, which you pay to BDO, you don't have any professional fees. Now, I have seen a long list of uh, professional companies, including one in Malta, Ganado. Um, they are all, I mean, big names. but they are not charging you anything. Is it that all the charges go to the Isle of Man? Can can you explain a bit? Because it looks a bit strange. Sure. To be honest. Yeah. So uh, some charges we had and we spent in 2017-18 were spent using our personal accounts, uh, stakeholder accounts, my my accounts, and our uh, partners, uh, being the Exante, licensed broker dealer based in Malta. And then in 2018, uh, sorry, 19, we started putting some charges to the Maltese entity, like you said. And in 2012, we increased uh, the share capital to pay even more expenses from the Maltese company. But so far, it still acts as a, just a stablecoin issuer, like an SPV, to issue and hold reserves. Uh, we will start getting uh, revenue only once we accumulate a significant amount of reserves. I cannot tell the exact number, but uh, once that happens and once the company starts bringing in some revenue, we'll move more costs to it. Uh, and it will act more like a, a traditional company you used to see. So far, its primary role was to accept capital and issue euro stablecoin in exchange and hold the assets, nothing more. All the development costs, the intellectual property rights, they are being paid for and held on a parent company. I see. Um, another question that you know comes to mind is if I buy uh, the errors from uh, from Stasis or through some broker, what comfort do I have that Stasis will be around in five years' time, ten years' time? Yeah, very good question. 
basically in crypto we say one month in crypto equals one year in uh, <laughs> traditional markets in the real world so things move really really fast uh, in crypto what i can say is we just closed a round of financing us based venture fund invested uh, capital into our project and there'll be an announcement about this and uh, more investors will follow so i can only say we are well capitalized and fully backed one-to-one -one. even worst case euro s uh, token holders decide to sell their tokens they will always have such a possibility either on the secondary market or through our sellback interface because we will hold all the client's money one-to-one -one and never spend it. So that's, This is an uh, important issue, Greg, uh, that you have touched upon. Therefore, if, if I buy stable coins and after six months I want to sell them, is there a ready market, a guaranteed market? It's, is it like buying treasury bills from government and then the government has to buy them because it guarantees? A market. So let me uh, let me share you uh, some liquidity opportunities that are available uh, in decentralized finance, for example, just to give you some comfort. Uh, in crypto, it's uh, uh, and then Tether proved this, right? It's about what you can trade your digital asset into and what are the markets that are available against it, uh, rather than the typical audit. Although we do have an audit, right? So you have some comfort that. Your euro s token is backed by uh, euro cash held uh, in uh, held on the balance sheet. But look, for example, this is just one uh, digital asset uh, platform, uh, decentralized one. So no no individual uh, can control it or stop it. And there is the liquidity of euro s of fifteen million total almost 50 million uh, against the USDC, which is another major stablecoin by Coinbase. You can always trade in a non-custodial way like uh, EUROS to USDC and through this basically decentralized exchange literally to any other cryptocurrency you have, like Ethereum or Bitcoin or uh, any other Ethereum-enabled coin. And this is just one platform that is available there. So say you've got 10,000 EUROS, right? You can always trade it into some amount of uh, USDC across this uh, platform or any other digital asset like Ethereum, for example, or any other kind of digital asset. Alternatively, you can go to the centralized exchange um, like Bitfinex or OKCoin OK and trade EUROS into some other digital asset through the centralized exchange, not through the decentralized interface, which maybe sounds uh, confusing or uh, or doesn't provide you enough comfort, but through a centralized exchange, you can see there are several markets available here, like Bitfinex, for example, or this Indodax or uh, a couple other exchanges that uh, list this token. Besides that, uh, you can always have an account with the Stasis Sellback. It's called Stasis Sellback, right? And uh, uh, until we have assets within our multi-entity, which you can see through the 
uh, audits we provide, you will be able to sell this uh, EURES tokens into Eurofiat. And we also support uh, Visa MasterCard, so you can uh, buy and sell EURES using your Visa MasterCard uh, both both ways. Okay. Um, one final question um, about the financial statements, etc. The the monies that that you have in fiat euros deposited mainly in Cyprus, if I understand well, um, are they held in the name of a custodian or or they are held by the company? They're held by the company. Do you, do you separate them sort of? Um, are they under your control or under the custodian's control? No, they are under uh, control of a director of a Maltese entity, which is myself, and uh, they're held with uh, licensed financial intermediaries, EXT and XNT, which are broker dealers and uh, uh, broker dealer on Malta and the full uh, investment license on Cyprus. So basically, these are the custodians who hold a euro on our behalf uh, in a segregated way. So they're not banks, they're not mixing up uh, capital with other clients. It's just uh, segregated accounts on the name of our Maltese entity, yes. Therefore, to give peace of mind to our listeners, it's not a situation where you can get those 40 million or whatever they are and run away with them because they are under lock and key, the drawer of a custodian, right? Uh, Yeah, there are three-party system which is involved in... uh, in this process, there is the auditor, BDO, who is familiar with our operations and have access to all our accounts, uh, and they keep an eye on uh, uh, all uh, assets across custodians and make sure they're ma- they match the amount of tokens that are issued. Uh, the second part is the this licensed broker dealers custodians, right, themselves. They uh, make sure their assets are segregated from uh, other clients. Uh, and then there is uh, our company and our internal policies, how uh, we operate with these uh, cash reserves, how we make sure our accounts are secure. And uh, we have several treasury accounts, actually, but uh, the ones we audit are the ones we, we hold the the, uh, the cash backing our tokens. Okay, Greg, from my side. <laughs> has been quite a grilling, but thank you very much for your very clear answers. You're welcome. For those listening, you've been talking about the company setup and all that, but how does Stasis make money from, even if it doesn't make money now, eventually, what's the business model behind, even in general, stable coins in general, not necessarily only Stasis? Sure. So... The goal for the issuer to make money is to accumulate significant amount of reserves and generate, say, 1% per year, uh, keeping them safe. Uh, the business model of a, a software company, software production company, is to uh, create white-label solutions. We were quite successful selling our treasury management software, our wallet software. We have a stablecoin wallet, which is a non-custodial application. And then we also have some revenue streams originating from that wallet. Say customer uh, makes a transaction inside the wallet uh, and we uh, accrue some small fee uh, out of it. Um, so this is the uh, business model to create and run and manage this software around uh, a stablecoin product. 
because stablecoin itself is not a business it's a product so you won't be doing anything with the with the custody or you won't be loaning it out or anything like uh, no 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 we want to keep it very simple very safe uh, and uh, so so our customers are comfortable that their tokens are backed one to one again uh, the goal is to run it as a big money market fund once it crosses 200 million mark because only then it becomes viable to hire some additional personnel and uh, establish additional counterparty relationships, do some additional reconciliation and then back office and all that. And again, w- the goal is to make 1% per year of gross revenue out of that cushion. Out of 200 million, it's 2 million in gross revenue, right? Uh, it's not much, but it will keep the reserves safe. And, and how is it a separate, that revenue that you just mentioned would be separate from the software? Yeah, totally separate. This is the revenue that we will accrue if or when to our Maltese entity, and you will see it in our audits. The software business is on the parent company, which is an Isle of Man stasis. And what does the treasury management software do? It's a software that helps you uh, create multi-signature accounts on uh, different blockchains, uh, create, redeem, and uh, apply some flags to the tokens. Uh, basically, again, uh, blockchain is a solution or a database to do clearing custody and settlement. And inevitably, you need some software that uh, provide uh, front-end to those transactions, right? So you need to uh, make sure people have a simple interface to operate with blockchain. Nobody uh, from a traditional treasury uh, in corporate world will be able to access the Linux shell, right, or type some pro commands in the uh, Ethereum node, right? They need some simple software like SAP or other service providers that are connected to traditional banking system. We replicate and redo this type of software for a blockchain-based treasury management. Mm-hmm. I want to come back to the tether issue. How do you, I mean, they're a competitor, obviously, but how do you interpret their whole journey and why do you think they've been so basically never said or were exposed to an audit? How do you think they can pull it off and why would they not be open to an audit? So first of all, they have a lot of stakeholders that have in turn the skin in the game. All the small to medium exchanges, even some big ones, are vested. They wanted to fail because they don't have access to a fiat banking system, right? Only a few exchanges uh, made it to the banking system and have uh, working banking accounts and are able to accept, uh, receive and send uh, fiat transactions. So Tether had a significant first mover advantage. In crypto, it pays off massively. If you do something first in crypto, there's a very big chance you'll be successful if this something that you do uh, accrues demand, of course, right? So Tether was uh, first to market and grew very quickly. And then once uh, the challenges uh, of banking system access emerged, they became a cash-on-chain solution for many unbanked exchanges. Also, like I said, uh, the huge market, gray market between China, uh, UAE, uh, partially Russia, or even Europe exists, and uh, people move money in tethers there uh, to facilitate that transactions. So 
they were quite successful with the secondary market support and apparently some market makers who are big in this uh, cryptocurrency trading have access to tether balance sheet and the only thing they have to take care of is that not everybody comes to redeem those tokens at the same time so their goal was to avoid a massive run on a bank as you know uh, banks fail not because sometimes they they have some challenges or issues with their balance sheets it's also true that they might have one but it's it's the bank run that uh, fails the bank because suddenly the bank receives uh, assets to liabilities mismatch as all the banks are very levered they cannot get away with that for a considerable amount of time when the, the bank run happens in tether uh, situation there was never like a significant leverage okay maybe they were like 20 percent under collateralized it's still nowhere close to five percent uh, cash to assets that traditional banking system has so they apparently uh, got away uh, with several bank runs that uh, were originated by keeping say i don't know 50 60 maybe 70 percent of assets relative to the amount of tokens they have i think it's just the matter of learning curve for the customers all over the world to better treat their counterparty risks right nobody is willing to go to some dirty restaurant for for a meal right everybody uh, over time develops some habits and some attitude towards uh, things we consume in life same will happen in crypto people started consuming tether because there were no uh, alternatives now the alternatives are there and some of them are much better much more transparent and becoming more and more available so ultimately people will switch i imagine if tether to experience any problems one day we will receive instantly hundreds of millions of demand for our stable coin but up to that point we need to build the infrastructure to be able to facilitate those type of capital flows right because it also takes time to establish a network of counterparties market makers uh, accounts in the traditional fiat systems accounts across cryptocurrency exchanges accounts across the centralized pools of capital to be able to absorb uh, those uh, flows and of course tether was quite successful in setting up this infrastructure and that's why it still exists. Yeah, I think there's also the legislative risk now that they're under investigation in the US. So we don't know how that will go. They just missed another deadline yesterday, I believe, uh, to provide some documents. So we'll see how that works out again. That can be a major event within the crypto space, I believe. Um, yeah. yeah. The, the problem that uh, US has is that there is no particular legislation uh, they can be uh, sued against right with liberty reserve it was easy or e-gold because uh, mm -hmm. money laundering or facilitating of criminal transactions could be enforced to a particular individual who was in charge of that database right of liberty reserve database in uh, tether example there is no particular person who facilitates the transactions right it's just the blockchain <laughs> that uh, uh, provides that functionality to to the token it's not a particular person who could be blamed for moving this dollar or this tether from this endpoint to add that endpoint so there is a lack mm -hmm. of 
application of particular legislative framework that yeah. historically uh, U.S. imposed on everybody uh, they wanted to shut down and uh, uh, everybody who, who even tried to compete with the U.S. dollar. This is another reason I made the euro uh, asset is because I wanted for, for the market to have the alternative to the U.S. dollar. U.S. dollar has significant internal troubles, challenges, and probably it will cease to exist as we know it in the next couple of decades. We live in a very uh, interesting uh, period of time where probably U.S. role and dollar role will be massively devalued uh, for the years to come. And where do you stand on the price manipulation argument, Tether, Bitcoin? Yeah, of course. Part of the reserves, I bet, uh, they hold in bitcoins just because they see the flows. They see some customers who are transacting in uh, Bitcoin. They also have Bitfinex as a platform to trade through. And uh, that was quite an easy idea to uh, get more tethers exchanged for Bitcoin. And once Bitcoin appreciate in price, they'll replenish the loss on the balance sheet. In fact, uh, just recently, uh, Tether repaid loan to Bitfinex. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, from Bitfinex. They received a loan. There was uh, several linked entities, Bitfinex, Tether, and uh, Crypto Capital, that were involved in a couple uh, uh, significant capital uh, hits. First one was Bitfinex hack in 2016, which they successfully navigated during a capital raise through the Bitfinex share sale. And second was the crypto capital uh, assets being frozen in, in Poland, which belonged to Tether. So in order for Tether to become, to come back to this collateralization ratio they targeted, they needed a loan from Bitfinex, which they took. And then uh, uh, Bitfinex in turn issued another instrument called Leo and raised some more money from the market. That's how they filled the gap in funding. But now... A uh, significant part of that loan is repaid, and uh, it looks like they might be uh, pretty much capitalized, and especially with such significant rise in Bitcoin price, uh, they could be back to the uh, almost full collateralization uh, of, of Tether. Although uh, they are never, they can never be audited. One thing about Tether is they they will never have an auditor, a reputable auditor put a name, uh, put its name to Tether's name. Yeah. And that's its biggest problem. So they have no exit strategy. There is just no way they can claim the status of the reputable and uh, transparent asset anymore. And once the market makes itself more familiar with other stable coins, which were built and focused on the transparency from day one, the market will switch. But it will take a little bit more time. What's what's interesting is in DeFi, uh, Tether is not really used. If you look through DeFi apps, and who just think of it, who are DeFi users? People who trust decentralization, people who trust transparency and credibility. Uh, people of this nature, they don't choose Tether as an asset to transact through DeFi. They choose USDC, they choose EuroS, they choose DAI. They don't use Tether. Tether is used predominantly by exchangers they don't have access to a fiat system which is already kind of shady right to some extent if you don't have access to a fiat system 
probably uh, it's for a reason. I mean, not just in Malta. If I mean, okay, you, you can not have access to a multi-banking system through Malta because it's just a, a special situation. But if you don't have access to a banking system from any other place in the world, you're probably uh, a, a not really a clean counterparty to transact with. Mm -hmm. But how does the manipulation happen actually? And this is a risk with all stable coins, or was it just because of Bitfinex and Tether being? related uh well i as as uh i am a shareholder minority shareholder of bitfinex i cannot really comment on this uh and uh not that is I is it a risk though that we have as a stable coin user or bitcoin users let's just risk? say there is always a risk in crypto uh that uh, somebody uh, can be hacked or some market manipulation occurs it's always a risk in crypto. When you enter crypto market, you just accept it as a fact that this can happen. You can judge only by the dynamic of the market, if that's significant or not. So if hack happens and everything goes to get everything goes south, then uh, probably it's an issue. If hack happens and the market kind of does not even notice it, like recent, for example, uh, transaction through Alpha, Hamora and Cream, Finance. Cream Finance is a very interesting and uh, undervalued project, but Alpha Hamora platform was used to siphon some funds through Cream. And people start selling uh, all DeFi space just because they thought, okay, there is another hack. Um, but the market recovered quite fast, so that gives you an idea that it's probably not a big deal. Uh, more than 50 billion locked in DeFi already and hacks of, say, 10, 11 million uh, does not move uh, a needle, right? If, if, if 11 million is the maximum you can siphon out of a 50 billion market, probably it's uh, quite a secure uh, marketplace already. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, one final question. The, you mentioned earlier that Ethereum has high fees and as a company or stakeholder in this ethereum project long term what do you think what are the prospects of ethereum long term given it too and the time it will take to launch it when we have new projects like polkadot especially and cardano which kind of solve that issue is it that everybody will switch or is it that projects like yours will operate on both yeah, very good question. Uh, so one thing you have to understand is every new blockchain uh, already has significant customer acquisition cost. Uh, think of a blockchain like Bitcoin, Ethereum, like a fast food global restaurant like McDonald's. If you open up another fast food restaurant, you will face significant customer acquisition cost. Because you need to persuade a user that he needs to use your blockchain. Apparently, even high fees is not a significant value proposition. And all these blockchain 3.0, kind of third generation of blockchains, Avalanche, Polkadot, Cardano, uh, Near, all, all of them will face the significant customer acquisition cost dilemma. At the same time, it's interesting that layer two solutions on, on Ethereum hasn't worked out massively at all. What we are currently witnessing is that uh, Binance chain is picking up some steam, which is basically a, a fork of Ethereum, 
although in a proof of stake form. So it's uh, more scalable and it's uh, very, very affordable. In fact, CZ Shield uh, recently uh, that Binance chain processed more than uh, daily transactions than Ethereum already. Um, and that was quite a boost for other projects to start looking into that because you can very easily port your tech, your software, your smart contract into that. But I don't see this as a long-term solution. Longer term, we need to see how uh, Ethereum evolves to, to its second version, to ETH 2.0, uh, because the quantified trust concept is very important. This is the uh, term I, I pioneered a couple of years ago, is something that allows you to judge how much capital or what is the actual monetary risk of a particular chain to settling your transactions. And Bitcoin and Ethereum proved already that these are the chains you can trust for transaction settlement. All others will have to not just face the customer acquisition costs, which are high, but also prove to the marketplace that uh, their trust into their settlement functionality can be quantified by multi-millions, hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars in actual assets. So we have to just uh, wait and see what uh, will be the next uh, layer one solution that will provide a similar level of security uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, provide. I don't, I'm not a big believer in neither of uh, chains I mentioned. I mean, Cardano hasn't produced anything in four years. They still have to show something. And I'm sure there'll be multiple surprises that something is not really working as intended. Uh, being a software developer myself, it's always like that. You never uh, can release your software in a plan planned timeline uh, with the functionality you kind of advertised. Uh, Polkadot is a very nice marketing exercise. Uh, at least a third of that uh, that they advertise will not work. This multi-sharding parachains, it will not work. It's just technically impossible for, for that to work in the way it was advertised. So the market will see a lot of um, disappointments out of uh, that as well. And then there is a whole list of other small chains or cross-chains interfaces like Cosmos, uh, Near, Avalanche. Avalanche had uh, an issue of, of its own recently as well. So um, the one I like among uh, other blockchains is Algorand. Um, at least that one didn't have any significant incident or um, uh, failed nodes last couple of years. And I have more trust in that technology than any other um, blockchain thir of third generation available on the market currently. But it's only for, it's maybe it will be good for settlements and micropayments, but the DeFi space uh, the Ethereum still has no competitors uh, at this stage of the uh, technological development, as I see it. And I looked through all of them. So, and I participated in some uh, test nets. I run some nodes. I uh, we won't some... even mention Ripple, right? <laughs> oh no, no, no! Ripple is not even a blockchain. Just forget yeah. it. Uh, yeah, it will just fade out of existence. Uh, it's interesting though, because all these projects, the, when we're talking about their, I mean, someone like you can talk about the technical validity of them, but that doesn't mean that the price, I mean, let's look at Ripple, you know, the price up, down. Yeah, yeah. 
because the marketing. It, it just give, gives you the sense of how uneducated the market participants are. And mm. uh, to some extent, maybe it's not necessary. In, in, in US, I mean, you can just let the market uh, figure it out. It just needs time. In the US, there were 5,000 car producers 100 years ago. Can you just imagine that? 5,000 mm-hmm. car producers. And every one of them was saying that their car will beat the Ford, will beat kind of whatever uh, technological advancements uh, General Motors or Chrysler or any other competitor had. And only time uh, figured that out, that out of 5,000, only three survived. Uh, some consolidated and some just uh, bankrupted, went bankrupt. Actually, there's one more thing I want to mention, just because I think people looking at stable coins will also be looking, as I mentioned, to other types like the DAI, Ampleforth, YUSD. What's the main advantage of using a fiat-backed stablecoin versus these other alternatives? Yes, I'll tell you the very significant and the major advantage is the interest rate. Only fiat-backed stablecoins with low credit risks uh, can uh, translate at least interest rate from the traditional financial system to blockchain uh, as close as possible. So again, think of dollar borrowing rates. They are like 20% for junk markets, 10% 10% for uh, markets with no kind of rating, right? 5% for investment grade markets and 1% for uh, uh, AAA counterparties. In Euro, the curve is very similar, although the lower end of the curve is below zero. So prime borrowers can actually get Euro for free, even be paid to borrow it at minus 0.1% or minus 0.5%. Uh, the investment grade market starts at two. Maltese bonds trade at zero to one, right? So the beauty of a fiat-backed stablecoins is we can uh, make sure this interest rate curve is somewhat replicated in the blockchain because the risk of this asset will be very close to its fiat alternative. With the uh, algorithmic stablecoins or with DAI, there's always will be what's called gamma. Um, it's uh, in, in option terms, it's called gamma or the rate at which volatility changes. And that will inf- always inflate the borrowing cost, the lending cost. So nobody will be willing to lend die at 1%. Just there'll be no such uh, counterparty because the risks, embedded risks are higher than 1%. So nobody willing to, will be willing to lend die at 1%. But there will be people who will be willing to lend EUROS at 1%, at 2%, because it's much higher than the alternative rate they're getting in the traditional banking system. You get the idea? So the interest rate, which is a critical component of all DeFi apps, uh, could only be brought to the uh, DLT space of a fiat-backed stablecoin, not from the algorithmic ones, because in algorithmics, there will always be embedded risks, which are much higher than the interest rate itself. Mm-hmm. Well. Everything has been super interesting. I think uh, listeners might even want to listen to this twice. There's been so much information packed into this episode. So thanks a lot, Gregory, for for joining us. Hope we can have you again in the future. And yeah, any parting words before we we leave you to continue our day? Well, again, uh, I think everybody should at least try uh, to experiment with this technology. I see uh, a lot of... uh, 
projects and uh, uh, countries and institutions joining the marketplace next uh, decade. Uh, and it will be the uh, very good to familiarize yourself with the technology. And the best way to start is to, to use stable coins. Uh, Stasis has stablecoin wallet, which is available both on iOS and Android. You can easily download it and uh, just play with this asset to get some stablecoin for yourself and then uh, try to send them to your friend or colleague, swap it into Bitcoin or Ethereum, just play with it and familiarize yourself with this technology. And once you're comfortable with it, you can move to the next step of allocating some capital and producing some returns uh, for your uh, investment portfolio. Excellent. So yeah, thanks again from our end. It's been very interesting and glad to have you on the show. Thanks Thank for you. having Thank me. You, Thank you. Cheers. Bye. All right. So that's a wrap for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And as usual, I ask you to leave a five-star review on iTunes if you like the show and all the other shows we've produced so far. Please let us know if there is any other topic that you'd like us to tackle or platform to review. We're very open for hearing from you, your opinions, whether you like the shows we're producing. And yeah, just to view, if you've been listening to this show for the past few episodes or it's the first episode that you listen, we'd really, really appreciate if you could even just get in touch and tell us how you're finding it, what you'd like us to improve and things like that. So the email is podcast at mastermind.fm. Again, podcast at mastermind.fm. And you can also find, find us on Twitter at mastermind.fm. That's it for today from us and see you in the next episode.